them, brothers, we are debtors, not to flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with Pastor Addison this morning as he teaches us your word. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to receive your wisdom, to teach us your truth so that we may be enlightened in our understanding to the glory of your holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. Good morning. See lots of well-rested faces after that extra hour of sleep. Unless you're a young parent, maybe you didn't actually get that extra hour of sleep. I don't know about you, but uh, somehow we won the young parent lottery. Our kids slept later today. Really not sure how that happened, but I'm thankful for it. Um, It's a delight to be here with you, uh, to open God's Word together, to be able to think on His Word and apply His Word to our life. And, and we're continuing in our Romans series, as you heard, Romans 8, 12 through 17, such a great passage. Uh, there's so much in this passage for us to think on and to apply and to, to really just dwell in this morning, and that's what we're going to do. We're just going to take it and really sink it in to our hearts so that it can be applied in our lives. So I've, like I said, got young kids, Theo, four, he, uh, he's our oldest, and a few months ago, he, uh, he regressed a little bit in his potty training, and this was interesting for Lynette and I, trying to figure out how to do, he's doing such a great job, and then all of a sudden, he took a huge step back, he would potty in his bed at the mi- middle of the night, in the middle of the day, he would wet himself, and we thought, what do we do? We don't know what to do with this, it's a little bit foreign to us, because he'd gotten so good at it, we loved the freedom of not having to change diapers for him. And so we tried everything. We tried to dehydrate him. We tried to, I'm just kidding, in case anyone's listening. We tried to wake him up in the middle of the night. We would try, you know, and get him to run around the house with no pants on. So he'd think about it. We did everything that we could do to try to figure it out. But finally, we succumbed to bribery and manipulation. Don't judge us. And we said, Theo, if you can go seven days without wetting yourself, you can pick out any Legos that you want, and we'll get you Legos. And of course, the next day, he wet himself. But then after that, seven days of not wetting himself, he knew that if he could keep himself dry for seven more days, that he would get the Legos that he wanted. I think there is a truth in there for all of us, that when we know something is going to be true, 
when we know we're going to attain something, when we know we have an inheritance of some sort, it affects the way we live our daily lives. We don't often think about it that way, but I guarantee you that it's true. Now, we today are a little bit removed from, from inheritances and being heirs, you know, in the way that the early Christians, and certainly they were in, in early Judaism, uh, we just don't have that same idea of inheritance. It's a little bit of a foreign concept for us. You know, the idea is that you, you get something at a certain time, whether that's land or money or Legos or something like that. Eventually, you get something, whether it's upon a death, upon a, uh, a time change, maybe years or so. And that is what Paul is talking about in our text this morning. That for you and me, for those of us that follow Christ, that walk with Jesus, we are heirs. We have an inheritance. We don't have to, I mean, we could look at lots of different scripture passages, and we'll accompany some of those in this morning. But it's true, we are heirs. Our text says that just very clearly. We're children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Do we have an inheritance waiting for us? And so we are to live as heirs. We're called to, to live our lives in a way that's changed and looks different because of the inheritance that we have. Just like Theo changed the way that he lived to get that Lego set, you and I are called to change our daily lives and to live as heirs. So the big question for this morning is, how do we do that? How do we live as heirs? What does living as an heir look like? And we're going to take a stab at it and look at three different ways that I, I think this text outlines for us how we are to live as heirs. It's in your bulletin. We live into freedom. We live by adoption. And we live with expectation. So those three ways help us live as heirs. So point number one, live into freedom. Uh, that word freedom uh, has a little bit of baggage, I think, for us. We need to unpack first before we can really get into what does it mean to live into freedom. You know, here in the United States, we have a certain idea of what freedom means. Some of that is good, but I think some of it uh, has, like I said, some baggage. You know, freedom is associated with choice, is associated with my individual person. You know, I am free to choose what I want to do when I grow up, who I want to marry, you know, what I want to believe, what parties uh, I want to be uh, uh, associated with. The choices are endless in our freedoms in America. And let's just be clear, that's true for our country. It's not true for a lot of the rest of the world. We're going to talk and pray later for the persecuted church, because today is International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And there are many places in the world that do not, they do not have those freedoms. So we don't want to take them for granted. But what we want to see is that freedom has been associated with individual choice. That is where our culture, that's where our modern sense of freedom is at, that it's choice. I can choose certain things that, that I want to associate myself with. And I think what we're realizing today in our modern culture is that those tend to pit us against each other, not together. 
They tend to isolate me from everyone else when I pursue my own freedoms to the nth degree, and you do the same. See, that's not the biblical idea of freedom. You see, when we live as modern people pursuing freedom, we're sort of bound to those things. We find our identity in those things. But in the biblical idea of freedom, we are actually bound. But it would say we're not bound to sin anymore, right? That's been abundantly clear. Paul has made that so clear throughout this whole section, 6, 7, and 8, that we are free from sin. We're no longer bound to sin, but we're bound to God. So our freedom isn't a change in our position. We're still bound, but it's a change in who our master is. So freedom means a new master. We are no longer bound to sin. Romans 6.18, having been set free from sin, you are slaves to righteousness. See, it's our position that has gone unchanged. It's our master. Once sin, now God. And in that, there's righteousness. Romans 6.16, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, again, that comes clear in our passage as well, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So either we live with sin as our master, leading to death, or we live as God as our master, leading to righteousness, leading to a life of flourishing, a life of received righteousness because of what Christ has done for you and me. So freedom means a new master, but freedom also means that under that new master, we have to put to death the deeds of the body. Paul makes that clear in our text, doesn't he? Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if we, under God as our new master, put to death the deeds of the body, we will have life. So it's important that we don't miss the context here, right? Paul is assuring the the Christians of the day, those that are following Christ, of this truth. He's using a negative example for a positive outcome. Remember, he's talking to Christ followers, and he's saying, look, you have got to be killing your sin on a daily basis, because that is where your life is. That's what you're called to. That's who you're bound to. Your master wants you to do that. I think, uh, you know, some of us might ask, what are the deeds of the flesh? Galatians 5 has a great, there's a few different places Paul lists this out. But in Galatians 5, there's a good one. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. Meaning the list goes on. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. So again, he ties the deeds of the flesh and the body to an inheritance. We do not receive the inheritance if we live into those things. Thus, we must be killing our sin or our sin will be killing us. That's a famous quote from the Puritan John Owen, of which I think has some great 
quotes and work on this. I would just commend to all of you if you can work through it. The, the, the writing is a little bit hard uh, for us today, just the way that it's outlined. But um, The Mortification of Sin, fantastic book, great work on this very idea. Maybe a couple quotes for us to think about here. You know, there's a certain infallibility and connection and coherence between true mortification, so the, the idea of putting something to death, and eternal life. If you use this means, you shall obtain that end. If you do mortify, you shall live. And herein lies the main motive unto enforcement of the duty prescribed. That's from John Owen. So how do we do this? How do we kill sin? Well, Paul gives us the answer in our text and other places as well. It's through the Spirit. It's life in the Spirit that we're able to kill, to mortify our sin. Owen, again, says, set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Just love that. Sin-sick souls. All other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. You see, it's through the Spirit that we can mortify, kill, put to death our sins, the deeds of the flesh, of the body. It's not in us. It's not in rituals. It's not in our certain practices. Those things may help. They may be good uh, assets to this endeavor, but they're not the way that we actually kill or uproot those sins. It's by pressing into the Spirit, by realizing that we've been given everything that we need to do this work. And it's the Spirit who dwells within us. You think about what, what is the outcome of that? What does that look like? Well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what happens when we press into the Spirit. And what comes of that what comes of that freedom is a flourishing life. It's a flourishing life. When we realize that we have a new master who has our best interests in mind, who knows us better than we know ourselves, is calling us to, to put to death the deeds of the body, we will have a flourishing life. But not only us, so not, and not only us, but the world. You see, when we prosper, the world will prosper as well. Because when we're called to kill those things, we're called to a freedom that is free to love other people. Galatians 5, again, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, our flourishing, our, the freedom that we have when we live into it, it means that we ourselves as, as individuals will flourish, yes, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is that we glorify God and everybody else will flourish around us. When the righteous flourish, the rest around us flourish as well. Why? Because we love and serve other people. It's not our, we're not taking care of just ourselves. We're taking care of the people around us, and not only the people that are sitting here with us this morning, or they're going to come to the second service, but our neighborhoods and our workplaces. 
the places where our kids go to school, the places where our parents are in retirement centers and assisted living, the ministries in different places around town that are, are taking care of the least of these. Those people will flourish because we, being freed from our sin, will love and serve the people around us. You might be thinking, that sounds really hard because I have neighbors that are very tough to love. So do I. But we're called to press into them because it's not about us. It's not about my comfortability with my neighbors. It's not about, you know, whether they're rude to me, should I be rude back? No, we are to love and serve them. To share of the freedom that we have in Christ with them. It's true of our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members. As the holidays approach, this is a very sticky time. Some of us avoid some of those family discussions. We just talk about the weather and sports. Thankfully, there's NFL games on Thanksgiving Day, right? But instead, we can press into hard conversations with love and patience, with joy, with thanks, thankfulness for who they are, image bearers of Christ and of God. So we live into that freedom but we do this by living by adoption. So we live as adopted sons and daughters of the living God. So being heirs is a, a result of being called children of God, right? Because that's what our text says. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have been you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. So if we're to live as heirs, we have to live by adoption. And I think adoption is something that we can all resonate with. We either know folks uh, that have been adopted, or we, we know, maybe that's a part of our own personal story, maybe it's a part of our family story. And by living through adoption, our lives are changed. You know, adoption means that we're not orphans, right? We're children of fill in the blank. We're no longer orphans. Now, for those of us that follow Christ, we are no longer orphans. Our adoption means that we're children of God. And that means something for us. There's an organization uh, now called uh, Surge. used to be called, um, I almost always say Mission to the World, which is the PCA one. It's uh, World Harvest Mission. There it is. They're all, they all used to be the same. Now it's Surge. So they have this great little diagram of what it means if we live as orphans or what it means if we live as children of God. And I just think... It's so powerful uh, that I wanted to read some of these for you. So as orphans, you know, you think about John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, is what God says to us. And as children of God, we have our verse, but he has given us the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we have a father. And here's what they say. So as orphans, we tend to be ungrateful, complaining, bitter, has a critical spirit, tears down others. But as children of God, we rely on the Holy Spirit to guide our tongue, our praises. We praise people, edify, we give thanks, we encourage. So as orphans, we tend to point out what is wrong. We're often dissatisfied with something. But as children of God, we're not blind to wrong. 
but we choose instead to focus on what is good and lovely. As orphans, we feel powerless to defeat the flesh. We have no heart victory over pet sins. We've lost our sense of being a big sinner. But as children of God, we rest in Christ. We see more and more victory over the flesh. And we see in ourselves that we are big sinners. You see, when we're adopted and called children of God, it changes the way that we look. It changes our outlook on the world. It changes the way we approach ourselves. We, we no longer see ourselves as pretty okay with a few blemishes, but rather as with a lot of blemishes and struggling to be okay. We see ourselves as big sinners, and that's okay because we can press into Christ because that's what Christ wants. Christ came not for the righteous but for the sinners. Christ came uh, as a doctor, and doctors don't heal Okay, people, they heal broken people. So we are okay to admit that we need that help, that we need that fixing. See, we're not orphans. Rather, we're children of God. And adoption means that we have rights. Adoption means that we have rights. You know, that Greek word for sons, it's a legal term. I'm, this is a, something I found in a commentary. It's used in the adoption and inheritance laws of first century Rome. You know, as used by Paul here and in other places in his letters, this term refers to the status of all Christians, both men and women, who, having been adopted into God's family, now enjoy all the privileges, obligations, and inheritance rights of God's children. Think about that. As being adopted into God's family, being called sons and daughter of the living God, the one who created all things, with whom all things hold together, we have rights in that family. Now for some people, that's a big stumbling block because they don't feel like they have rights today. Maybe they're feeling like they can't access certain privileges because of who they are, or what family they've been born into, or how they were brought up. But as all of us, as followers of Christ, no matter where we find ourselves on the socioeconomic spectrum, no matter where we find ourselves male or female, no matter where we find ourselves living, in what state or what country, as followers of Christ, we have rights. We have rights into him, the right of dignity, that we are called beloved, that we are made in the image of God, that we're loved by him as a good father. He wants the best for us. We have the rights of inheritance, which we'll talk about in our last point. And we have the, the right of access to God. Before, when we are not walking with God, we don't have access to him. We don't have access to the things that we're talking about. But as followers of Christ, we have access to him because of what has been given for us. Christ given himself to us so that we may have access to God. That we can pray to him and know that he hears and listens to us. That we can walk with him and know that he is walking with us. No matter the situation, no matter the trial or temptation that we find ourselves in, we have access to God. And he's happy to give us himself. 
So adoption means that we're not orphans and we have rights, but it also means that we have a new family. And that's been hinted at here. You know, we're brought into a new family. This is just uh, clear for all of us. So when you're, someone's adopted, they're, they're brought into a new family. So when we become followers of Christ, we're brought into a new humanity, a new following, a new family. That means that there's no division of race or ethnicity. There's no division, again, of male or female, of socioeconomic status. This family is one big family called under the lordship of Christ and to follow him in that. It's a new humanity. The church is this new humanity. Again, hard for us to see sometimes in our modern day. With all the different denominations, with all the different splits, sometimes we look like uh, fighting in-laws as opposed to one giant family. Look, there's still sin. We still have to repent and, and, and seek out the Lord in all of this. But we've been grafted in. John 15, right? We've been grafted in. And we have access to this new humanity and the rights that it brings us to be in this new family. And this is so important today more than ever. As we hinted at, as a divided people, the church can be a place where people can feel welcome. If we see ourselves here as big sinners, willing to accept the fact that we need Christ daily, because we have to be killing our sin, because sin rules in our body, that we can welcome people who look messy into this new family. This is not a place where it's just for the, okay, we have it together. But this is a place where we're welcoming people who don't look like us, who don't necessarily walk the same way we do in terms of our beliefs, in terms of uh, the, maybe the political parties that we follow, uh, maybe because of the, the sports teams that we follow. Whichever degree of difference we tend to circle ourselves with and other people with, in this family, all are welcome as long as they are under the lordship of Christ. And that's a process, isn't it? We know that that's not a a one-time thing. We're working that out day in and day out. We take communion to remind ourselves of the fact that we got to continue to work on this. And so people are welcomed into this new family. God wants them adopted in in the same way that you and I were adopted in. The gospel is calling us to that, back to that sonship If we live as orphans, we lack passion to share the gospel. Since our Christian life is not really good news, it it tends to be motivated by obligation or duty, not love. But as adopted children of God, we have a desire to see the lost come to know Jesus the way that we do. We share the gospel even when not under the outward pressure of a program because it's out of love. We realize how much we've been loved and how much God loves his creation. We welcome them in. We share of the good news. God loves sinners. And he wants to see us come to know and walk in a further relationship with him. And so we have to live this life. This life is heirs by living through and by adoption. It's a new way of life. Adoption is a way of life. Okay, so we've looked at, if we're going to live as heirs, we, we live into freedom. 
You know, we live by adoption, and, and then we live with expectation. We live with expectation. If we look at our text, we said if we're children, then we're heirs, right? We, we already outlined that, though we don't live in a time of inheritance and, and heirs and those sorts of things. And that is something that is to come. And heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm glad we left like another hour to talk about that, provided we suffer with him. So just buckle in. We'll, we'll really get this down, maybe done before Sunday school. I'm just kidding. So we live with expectation. Yeah, expectation of suffering. I mean, it's right there. You can't avoid it. I joked when we were studying this text as a group earlier in the week, I wish verse 17, I wish we just ended at 16. Or like 16a, we just cut out that last little part, provided we suffer with him. But that's weighty. So as Christ followers, we're called to suffer with Christ in order that we are glorified with him. Now I think there's three ways we can think about this suffering today. We can think about it in terms of persecution suffering, uh, corrective suffering, and then what I'm going to call the pollution of sin suffering. So persecution suffering, that's one that is, is kind of clear for us. We think about places like China, Saudi Arabia, India, different places where Christians are being persecuted for what they believe, that they believe in Christ. They're persecuted by the government, by other people group. It means that they're shunned upon. They're not allowed to do certain things. You know, in China, when they go to church, they show up, and on the door of their church, it says, no children allowed. So all of you that have children, if you were going to church in China, your children would not be able to go in there. And they're videotaping their worship services. They're tracking people to know who is there. Now, that's the persecuted church. That's an example of the persecuted church. Okay, so what about corrective suffering? Well, this is the suffering that we see in the Bible that's sort of correcting us of our sin. It's correcting us of the ways in which we are not walking as heirs. We're not walking with Christ. This is clear for, I would say, hopefully 100% of us. We know what that kind of corrective suffering is. And when we sin and we seek repentance... Usually a part of that is seeking forgiveness from someone, certainly of God. And he's going to be working and pruning us, to use language from John 15. But our sin is usually affecting somebody else as well. And as we seek reconciliation with that person, that's painful. That's hard. Broken relationships are very difficult. It means we have to humble ourselves. Admit that we were wrong. Admit that we sinned. Sometimes this is small. Forgot to come to some place on time. You didn't value someone's time. That's a big one for me. You know, perhaps you, uh, you know, thought of yourself uh, in a situation before you thought of someone else. But sometimes that's really big. Sometimes you've really wronged somebody. And as you seek forgiveness, that corrective suffering that you are not walking in the way of the Lord, here is how you are to walk, that hurts. Pruning hurts. I sometimes just wish I could hear what the flowers and plants were saying as I cut little limbs off of them. I'm sure they're not screaming for joy. But that's corrective suffering. 
And the third thing we see is the, the, the pollution of sin suffering. That's the living in a broken world, living in a place where, where sin has tainted everything. That's broken relationships. That's cancer and failing bodies. That's, you know, persecution, you know, and suffering. That's suffering for this, not the sake of the church, but just suffering in different places. There's the pollution of sin, and we all feel that suffering as well. This is a hard place to live. There's lots of things. Just turn on the news for like five seconds and you're, you're willing to hear about some way that the world is wrong. That is the pollution of sin. See, we all know people who are suffering, whether that's ourselves or it's someone else. We find that we know someone in one of those three categories. But that suffering is a path to glory. The suffering is a path to glory, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It cannot be any clearer that our suffering, our afflictions, are a pathway to glorification in the Lord. When Paul opens this section of Romans, starting in chapter 5, he goes all the way through chapter 8. In chapter 5, he starts off by talking about this very idea. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. You look at 3, it says, Rejoice in your afflictions. Rejoice in your sufferings. Because it's through your suffering that endurance, it produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And it's hope in God. That was the Addison Standard Version, so don't quote me on that. But that's what we're called to. We're called to walk in our sufferings with God because he is working on us. He is building perseverance, which is building character, which leads us to hope, which leads us to glorification and glory in the Lord. And... We're thankful that that's true, right? 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is on unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So what is that glory? Well, it's not only the undoing of all the brokenness we see, the broken bodies, the broken world. But it's something far better than just that. It's a life with Christ. It's a life with God. We dwell in his place. We dwell with him. I think Revelation just says it better than I could ever try and say it. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. That's the hope. That's the glory that we live into. So when we live with expectation, it's not that we just expect to suffer, but through our suffering, we know that we're going to have a life with God dwelling with us where there's no more pain, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more death, 
Hallelujah. That is beautiful. We live with an expectation of that. And friends, this is what living as heirs looks like. We live knowing that we're going to put to death sin, living into our freedom. We live as adopted children, bought with the blood of Christ. And we live expecting that God will work through our lives through pain and suffering because one day, one day, we'll dwell with him. We'll dine with him. Saucer's welcome was so beautiful. What a picture of what that day will be like. And that's what we live expecting as heirs today. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> what a picture. We could have just ended after the welcome and just a beautiful picture of what a life to come, our inheritance, what it looks like with God the Father. There's light, there's beauty, there's feasting, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no sin. Yet now we live in the not yet part. That's already promised for us. But today we live a life where we need to be killing our sin, where we need to live reminding ourselves of the adoption promises that you have given us. So, Father, give us the strength that you have in the Spirit to do this. We love you, Father. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.